Daniel chapter 9, beginning in verse 20. Now, while I was speaking, praying, confessing my sin and the sin of my people Israel, and presenting my supplication before the Lord my God for the holy mountain of my God, yes, while I was speaking in prayer, the man Gabriel, whom I had seen in the vision at the beginning, caused to fly swiftly, reached me about the time of the evening offering. And he informed me and talked with me and said, O oh, Daniel, I have now come forth to give you skill to understand. At the beginning of your supplications, the command went out, and I have come to tell you, for you are greatly beloved. Therefore, consider the matter and understand the vision. Seventy weeks are determined for your people and for your holy city to finish the transgression, to make an end of sins, to make reconciliation for iniquity, to bring in everlasting righteousness, to seal up vision and prophecy, and to anoint the most holy, or literally in the Hebrew language, a most holy place. In verse 25 it says, Know therefore and understand that from the going forth of the command to restore and build Jerusalem until Messiah, the prince, there shall be seven weeks and 62 weeks. The street shall be built again and the wall, even in troublesome times. And after the 62 weeks, Messiah shall be cut off, but not for himself. And the people of the prince who is to come shall destroy the city and the sanctuary. The end of it will be with a flood until the end of the war desolations are determined. Then he shall confirm a covenant with many for one week. But in the middle of the week he shall bring an end to sacrifice and offering. And on the wing of abomination shall be one who makes desolate even until the consummation which is determined, is poured out on the desolate. In this passage, the angel Gabriel appears to Daniel, and he brings a message. The Lord is going to reveal his predictive timeline for Jerusalem and for the Jewish people. This new prophecy not only provides an astonishing answer to the prayer that Daniel has just prayed, that is, will you forgive and restore Israel? Will you make a way for the whole world to experience forgiveness of sin and reconciliation to God? The Lord reveals his plan for the future through an angel, for Daniel, for his people, for the world. It's going to include six elements to the plan. And the plan is going to be fulfilled over a 490-year period. And there's the rub. For some, these 77s are an unknowable bank of years used as a literary device to describe the unfolding future. Others take the 77s quite 
literally. For some, this passage of Scripture, like its New Testament counterpart, the book of Revelation, seems like a hopeless prophetic swamp full of murky meaning, impossible to know. For others, it's a prophetic oasis, a refreshing source of water, a well that's been placed in the desert, a guide to God's people so that they could understand their salvation and their future. By the way, that's my take, the prophetic oasis. To me, this isn't a murky swamp devoid of meaning. The prophecy is an answer to prayer. And it's a key to understanding the future. So our friend Daniel, remember, has spent time in prayer. His prayer was prompted by the study of Jeremiah's prophecy and God's promises. We've already looked at that. The Lord, through Jeremiah, said, you're going back. You will go home. Daniel was concerned about God's people. Daniel was concerned about God's holy city, Jerusalem. He was concerned about God's plans and God's purposes. He knew that the Lord promised the return, the city's restoration, the temple's rebuilding. Daniel's prayer of intercession includes a willingness to abandon sin and embrace God's plan for the future. And so think about it. He is there. He is wondering, will God hear my prayer? Will he hear my plea? Will God's people receive forgiveness? Will the nation ever be redeemed from sin? Will righteousness ever dwell on this planet? And it would appear that God's divided his plan into three time periods. One time period will incorporate a seven and sevens, or 49 years. One time period will incorporate that seven plus a 62 seven, 434 for a total of 483 years. One of those time periods will incorporate yet one more seven. It's my understanding that two of those time periods have passed. One remains outstanding. Let's look. Look at verse 20. Now, while I was speaking and praying and confessing my sin and the sin of my people Israel and presenting my supplications before the Lord my God for the holy mountain of my God. The holy mountain is Zion. The holy mountain is Zion on the sides of the north. This is Mount Moriah. This is the holy mount. This is the place that God set aside. This is the place where Isaac or where Abraham offers Isaac. This is the place where Solomon's temple was built. This is the place that was set aside by God to represent sacrifice for sin. While he's praying, it says, Yes, while I was speaking in prayer, the man Gabriel, whom I had seen in the vision at the beginning, being caused to fly swiftly, 
reached me about the time of the evening offering. First of all, I want to bring two things to your attention. The prophet's prayer in verse 20, the angel's appearance in verse 21. We've spent a great deal of time looking at the prophet's prayer in verses 3 through 19. We just need to add a couple more things for just a few moments. You'll note that Daniel finishes his prayer, and as he's finishing his prayer, God is at that very moment answering the prayer. Stephen R. Miller in his commentary on Daniel, he, he basically points out that sinlessness is not a condition for answered prayer. Remember, he's speaking, praying, confessing his sin, speaking, praying, confessing his sin. And so if you've ever wondered, can God even hear my prayer? Because my heart is so dark. And my circumstance is so bad. Right away we receive that insight. Daniel is confessing his sin and the sin of his people. Now remember Daniel's character is almost unequaled of any Old Testament biography. And even Daniel cannot say, like it says in Proverbs 20 verse 9, I have kept my heart pure, I am clean and without sin. He hasn't kept his heart pure. He wasn't completely clean and without sin. There's none righteous. No, not one. We've all sinned and have fallen short of the glory of God. And because we've all sinned and, and fallen short of the glory of God, that's not a reason to neglect prayer, but to pursue prayer and to pursue intercessory prayer. How can we suggests that we have no need to confess our sin when that's exactly what we have need of. Now I want you to remember, as he's praying, the angel Gabriel appears. And so you should ask, well, why is he called a man then? Because he apparently takes the form and the appearance of a human being. Daniel notes that he is the same man that Daniel saw at the beginning of the vision. When did that happen? For those of you who've been following along, that's when we studied Daniel chapter 8, verses 15 and 16. He sees this person in that vision, and we're also left with the impression that this isn't simply a vision. But this is the actual appearance of an angelic creature. This is the supernatural manifestation of a being who has come from the very presence of God. And it would seem that Gabriel was tasked by God with this specific function, that expression, being caused to fly swiftly, is really problematic. It's a hard thing in the Hebrew language. The Hebrew expression is mu'ap, biap. It can be translated in a couple of different ways. It could be translated about flying swiftly, but it could be translated in my extreme weariness or in my fatigue, or in my exhaustion, or something similar to that. The idea that 
Gabriel comes swiftly to bring the message seems to fit the context, but so does Daniel's utter exhaustion after prolonged prayer and specific fasting. It's the time of the evening sacrifice. This would have been about three or four in the afternoon. And of course, it's Daniel's prayer persistence over a period of time. He has, since his youth, prayed at about nine o'clock in the morning, prayed at about noon, prayed at about three o'clock. This isn't something that's unusual, but there is something unusual about this particular prayer and of course, there is no evening sacrifice because the temple in Jerusalem is gone. It has been destroyed. It is annihilated. It doesn't exist. Except in God's plan and God's purpose and God's heart. Daniel is in Babylon, but his heart never left Jerusalem He's forced to spend his years a captive. But his heart has been made captive by the God of Israel. And so, in verse 22, we see the angel's announcement. And he informed me and talked with me and said, Oh, Daniel, I've now come forth to give you skill to understand at the beginning of your supplications, that's petitions, the command went out and I've come to tell you for you are greatly beloved, therefore consider the matter and understand the vision. The angel informs, that's a very specific Hebrew word. It means to instruct. It means to provide specific instructions, to give skill or insight, sakal, understand, and so here, the Hebrew expression is almost repetitive. It's almost redundant. It's the idea of, I'm here to give you insight and understanding. Now, I want you to think about that for just a moment. When the angel is saying, I want to give you insight and understanding, it isn't, I want to confuse you and make you hopelessly confused about what may or may not happen. That's not what's happening. There's specific instruction. And it would seem the moment that Daniel began to pray, the answer was given by the Lord for Gabriel. The implication being the moment that you bowed your head or your heart, the moment you raised your hand, the moment the words left your mouth, I was instructed by the King of heaven to respond to your prayers. Now this is so very interesting to me. This isn't a heavenly text message. This isn't a, I'm going to like you on your good book page. The Lord sees Daniel's fervent and sincere prayer. He sees his humility. He sees his commitment. How do we know that? Verse 3, he's fasting. The angel's use of the personal pronoun in the Hebrew language is significant and emphatic in verse 22 and in verse 23. What I mean by that is I was sent. I'm going. I'm the one who's responding. The implication is the angel leaves the presence of God and is really there. Why is that important for you and me? This isn't 
simply a vision. The angel's really there. The angel is visible, tangible. So when we read about Gabriel's future appearances to Zechariah, the father of John the Baptist in Luke chapter 1 verse 19, and Mary announcing the birth of Jesus in Luke chapter 1 verses 26 and 27, again, to Zechariah, we're left with the impression he's really there. With Mary, he's really there. With Daniel, he's really there. In that single statement also is a revelation of inestimable value. The angel says again, reinforcing the idea that he's really there, you are greatly beloved. Other translations say, you are highly esteemed. The, the Hebrew word is hamudot. It's plural, hamudot means something or someone that is highly desired. It means counted precious. Now, again, you have to dig a little bit deeper and think about what you're reading. In that single statement, we understand something. Daniel is human. Daniel is extraordinary. But he must, like all human beings, wonder what God really thinks, what God really feels, what God really thinks about him. Haven't you? Haven't you ever prayed? And as you prayed, have you ever got, thought to yourself, Lord, what? What do you really think about me? Are you there? Do you really care about me? Now this is so very interesting to me for so many reasons. Because that word, chamudot, is elsewhere used in the Old Testament in the book of Ezra chapter 8 verse 27 as a description of gold. It's used in Genesis chapter 27, verse 15, where Eleazar is trying to bring a bride back for his servant and master. And it's used to describe the precious robes and costly garments that's given to the future bride. The angel tells Daniel that in God's eyes, he is God's precious treasure. And we should be able to see something, if not ourself, that you're not just simply an instrument of use. Your life doesn't simply consist in what other people can get from you. You are not simply a toy or a tool or a weapon. There is something about you that goes beyond your instrumentality. That is what you can do. But it goes and reaches further and deeper into what you intrinsically are. And in our culture and society, they would have you believe that you're just simply an instrument, 
either for good or for evil, for help or no help at all. But that's not what the Bible teaches. The Bible teaches that you're made in the image of God. The Bible teaches that you are created by God in the image of God and that you have a precious value and a precious worth. Now, again, in this statement, we now can understand a little bit better what the angel says when he says, consider the matter. Understand the vision. Pause. Why would the angel say that if it can't be done? Pause. Think about it. Think about it hard. For some of you, when I continue this passage, your confusion is going to grow greater and greater. For some of you, it's going to become clearer and clearer. I have thought long and hard and prayed long and hard how I can make this not more confusing, but more clear. Look what it says, the angel's prophecy in verse 24. 70 weeks are determined for your people and for your holy city to finish the transgression, to make an end of sins, to make reconciliation for iniquity, to bring in everlasting righteousness, to seal up vision and prophecy, and to anoint the most holy. There are several moving parts to this prophecy. In short, we're given the focus of the period and the feature of the period. The Lord is going to confirm the scripture he is going to consecrate the sanctuary. So at the very moment, the first statement, 70 weeks are determined for your people and your holy city. What are these? What are the 70 weeks? We first have to remember the number seven and its significance. The word weeks translates the Hebrew word shabuim or Shavuim. You can pronounce it with a kind of a hard B or a, or, a, or a hard V, but it's Shavuim. It means a collection of seven. It's a seven. We, we understand that God creates the world in six days and rests on the Shavuah, the seventh day. The number seven signifies completion, rest. And so we use the word dozen to describe a unit of 12. If I said, I have a dozen, you would say, a dozen what? Do you have a dozen donuts? Do you have a dozen eggs? Do you have a dozen cars? It's a unit of 12. And so here the phrase means a unit of a seven. And so when he says 70 weeks, that's the same word, shavuim. 70 sevens are determined for your people. The word determined translates a Hebrew word, chatak 
which is an accounting term. It means to reckon. It can mean to count. It can mean to count out. And so it has a kind of a mathematical meaning. So it is to reckon or to count or to count out. So there are several questions we have to ask. Who or what is the object or the force of this prophecy? The angel tells us the prophecy is directed to your people, the Jews, the Jewish people. He's not speaking to the Babylonian nations or the surrounding nations or the Gentile nations. This is instruction that has as its primary focus the Jewish people. And when he says your holy city, he's not talking about New Orleans, which is my holy city. Even though the people from there are called saints. You may be from another city, Boston or Los Angeles, Philadelphia or New York, Dallas or Detroit. This is for the holy city. And there's only one holy city. There's only one city that's been separated by God to accomplish the plans and purposes of God. This is the city of Jerusalem. And so the angel then reveals that a certain measure of time has been set aside for Daniel and his people and that city. The angel uses specific language to spell out everything that that plan includes, it would seem that what the angel is saying is that God has a calendar and he has a clock and on that calendar and clock he has set aside 490 years to do everything that he plans to do, to accomplish everything that he hopes to do. And he gives six things. Number one, to finish the transgression. Number two, to make an end of sins. Number three, to make reconciliation for iniquity. Number four, to bring in everlasting righteousness. Number five, to seal up vision and prophecy. And number six, to anoint the most holy Literally, it says place, to set aside this place. Each and every one of those things has a cosmic significance. And because each and every one of them has a cosmic significance, I toyed with the idea of giving you a fairly in-depth look at each one. But I can't do that. I can only briefly touch on each of them. Because some of these things have already been partially fulfilled. All of them will be fully fulfilled over the 490 year period, which finds its consummation in verse 27. And so what does the angel mean when he prophesies to finish the transgression, to make an end of sin, to make reconciliation for iniquity? Is this angel telling Daniel and his people and that city that simply 490 years are still left of punishment? Or is there 490 years of judgment and punishment for the people to learn to stay away from sin, to experience cleansing from guilt, to set the stage for the golden era of the Messiah? I think it means way more than that. 
I think it's a specific reference to specific events. Two in particular. The first is the cross of Calvary where Jesus comes and he dies on the cross for sin. And the second is the second coming of Jesus Christ in majesty and glory. And so we're going to come to those things to finish the transgression, to make an end of sin, to make reconciliation for iniquity in a very real sense. When Jesus comes, all of these things are unfolding and taking place. Jesus is going to do this cosmically, but he's also going to do it specifically and individually. Just like God has set aside 490 years to deal with the Jewish people and to deal with the city of Jerusalem, he set aside a certain amount of time for you. I don't know what that time period is. I don't know how many sevens you have. This year, I will enter into my ninth seven. I shouldn't say enter in. I should say complete my ninth seven. Can you imagine if someone said to you, 63 years has been appointed unto you. You have one seven, and then another seven, and another seven, and another seven, and another seven, and another seven. Each and every one of you is appointed a measure of time and a measure of faith. God has appointed for some of you few years. Most of you, more years. The Bible says some of us might get three score and ten. And that means 60 plus ten by reason of strength. And if you've lived a day past 70, it's gravy train for you. It is gravy train. But God has set aside a time for these people and for us. And in verse 25, it says, know therefore and understand. It doesn't say don't know, try and figure it out, but it's a hopeless mess. He says, know therefore and understand that from the going forth of the command to restore and build Jerusalem until Mashiach Nagib, until the Messiah, who is the prince, there shall be seven Shevot, there'll be seven sevens and 62 sevens. The street will be built again and the wall, not the president's wall, not the wall on our southern border. This, this is not a prophetic implication that we should build the wall. It's a political issue. I'm not getting into the political issue. What I'm saying is this is not a prophecy concerning Daniel Trump. This is a prophecy concerning the Jewish people and the Jewish city, even in troublesome times. Two princes are mentioned. Messiah the prince, verse 25. The prince who is to come, verse 26. 
It's important that in your mind you go, okay, there's two princes who are being talked about. Are they the same prince? Are they an identical figure? Are they two different people? I'm going to suggest to you that they're two different people at two different times. Where might we find the command to restore and build Jerusalem? After Persia conquered Babylon, various rulers issued different decrees. The first decree was issued by Cyrus with a view towards rebuilding the temple and didn't focus on rebuilding the city in 538 BC. Another by Artaxerxes I to Ezra in 458 BC tasked Ezra and said, Ezra, go back to Jerusalem, investigate the people, evaluate what's going on, see whether or not they're being obedient to the revelation that's been given to your people, God's word, God's law. So the issue at that point was to safeguard the Jewish religion and not the rebuilding of the city. There's only one passage in all of the scripture that speaks of rebuilding the wall and rebuilding the city. It's found in Nehemiah chapter 2. In Nehemiah chapter 2, it gives us the date. In Nehemiah chapter 2, verse 1, Nehemiah writes that it was in the 20th year of King Artaxerxes. It was in the date of Nisan, and it doesn't give us the date. It doesn't say if it was day number 1, or day number 2, or day number 3. It just says Nisan. And then it says, in the 20th year of Artaxerxes. Now, what year do you suppose that might be? It happens to be 445 BC. What year was Daniel's vision? In chapter 8, and then again in chapter 9. The first year of Darius, the son of Azuerus. That's Daniel chapter 9, verse 1. If Darius is another name or title for Cyrus, that would place the year at 539 BC. Why is that important? Because the countdown for the clock to start ticking is not going to start ticking until the decree is made. So as Daniel is getting this vision and then he gets the visitation by the angel, the clock, that time period that's been set aside for Daniel's people and for the city has yet to start ticking because that clock doesn't start ticking until some 80 years in the future. Gabriel speaks of seven Shavuot, Shavuot weeks of years followed by 62 weeks of years for a total of 69 weeks of years. And so, in verse 26, it says, And after 62 weeks, Messiah shall be kerot, cut off, but not for himself. And the people of the prince who is to come shall destroy the city and the sanctuary. The end of it shall be with a flood until the end of the war desolations are determined. So the, the angel describes two of the three time periods. The first... A seven, that's seven weeks. That's 49 years. The next is 62 
weeks. What happens at the end of those 62 weeks? Messiah is cut off. There are two important historical events that are listed. The first is the death of the Messiah. Messiah shall be, the Hebrew expression is kerot. It means severed. Edward Pusey wrote, quote, the word never means anything but excision, death directly inflicted by God, or a violent death at the hands of men. It's never used to describe mere death. It isn't used to describe natural death, but something that is sudden and unexpected. John Phillips writes, quote, from the signing of the decree to the cutting off of the Messiah, it was to be 483 years, seven plus 62 weeks, 69 times seven, 483 years. John Phillips writes in the most succinct manner, quote, probably the most convincing attempt to calculate the countdown from the signing of the decree to the death of Christ is that of Sir Robert Anderson. I happen to have an old copy of his book, Daniel in the Critic's Den. Sir Robert Anderson, when he calculated this particular event and presented it to the Royal Society, he was knighted by the Queen of England. He wrote, he put the edict for rebuilding the city as the first day of Nisan. From that date to the Messiah, the prince was 69 times seven years. That's 483 years. The Hebrews used a 360-day calendar. Theirs is a lunar calendar. It was in Babylon, a lunar calendar. Egypt, a lunar calendar. And so it's 360 days times 483 is 173,880 days. Fast forward into the future. 173,880 days brings you to the 10th of Nisan in the 18th year of Tiberius, the day when the Lord makes his public triumphant entry into Jerusalem and presents himself to the nation as Messiah, Nagib. The date of 10 Nisan, 18, Tiberius, reckoned by... the Jet Propulsion Lab, comes to April 6, 32 AD. Quote, this is by my friend Ron Rhodes. The day Jesus rode into Jerusalem on a donkey to proclaim himself as Israel's Messiah was 483 years to the day. It was exactly 173,880 days from the declaration that was given in Nehemiah chapter 2. But it was probably just a coincidence. <laughs> I'm glad you laugh. I'm glad you laugh. Because the absurdity of that kind of specificity is almost unimaginable. 
part of the point that you have to receive from this passage is that God is specific down to the tiniest detail about the first coming of Jesus. And so we have every reason to believe that it's going to be certain and specific down to the tiniest detail of the final week, the outstanding week. There's one more week left. The angel warns of a prince who's going to come, but he also warns of the people of that prince who's going to destroy the city of Jerusalem and the sanctuary. The temple will be destroyed by Titus and Vespasian, the 10th and the 12th Roman legions. They will come at exactly from 66 down to 70. And guess what? On the 9th of Av, Tishpa'av, the temple will be destroyed and the war is catastrophic and the des desolations were determined and the Jews and the Jewish people were going to experience persistent hardship, unbelievable pain, in unbelievable persecution, unbelievable suffering from month to month and year to year and decade after decade. And then the angel's warning in verse 27, then he shall confirm a covenant with many for one Shavuah. But in the middle of that week, he shall bring an end to sacrifice and offering. And on the wing of abomination shall be one who makes desolate even until the consummation or the end, which is determined it is poured out desolate. In this single sentence is a summary of this outstanding seven. But it should bring to your mind a couple of things. Well, I don't get it. I, I don't understand. How is it possible that the clock can start and stop? The reason why it can start and stop is because God's plan and purpose starts and stops. God is going to cause the temple to be rebuilt. The people are going to return. The Messiah is going to come. The temple's going to be destroyed. And in verse 27, in this single verse, is the entire book of Revelation. So you're probably wondering, how is he going to teach that? I can't teach the entire book of Revelation in the eight minutes that I have left. There's one period that God has set aside to finish the transgression. What does that mean? To put down the rebellion once and for all. Who's in rebellion? All humanity is in rebellion against God. The Bible says, even while we were enemies, God sent Jesus to die for us. There is a rebellion in the human heart that insists on having its own way, that plots a path to self-sufficiency and purity and dignity, and they attempt to do it apart from God, but it is impossible because you're made by God to have fellowship with God, to have friendship and fellowship with him. There's an outstanding seven. The Bible speaks of this seven 
as the time of Jacob's sorrow. Where does it say that? Again, remember, Daniel was reading the prophet Jeremiah, and Jeremiah wrote in chapter 30, verses 7, 8, and 9, Alas, in all history, when has there ever been a time of terror, such as that which is coming, that coming day? It is a time of trouble for my people, Jacob, such as there has never been before. Yet God will rescue them. For on that day, says the Lord Almighty, I will break the yoke from their neck and snap their chains, and foreigners shall no longer be their masters, for they shall serve the Lord their God and David their king, whom I will raise up for them, says the Lord. When did the Jewish people ever snap the chain? When did they ever end the bondage? When was it that foreigners no longer have rule over the Jewish people? When has it taken place that David, their king, has been enthroned on the throne in which he deserves to rule and reign? It's never happened. Not yet. There's an outstanding seven. The angel warns of another prince. This prince is different from the Messiah. This is a false prince and a false Messiah. He confirms a covenant, that means an agreement. He creates a strong treaty during this Shavuah, a seven. At the half mark, at the three and a half year mark, at the time, times, and half a time, he shall bring an end to sacrifice and offering. Was it at the three and a half year period that the temple was destroyed? No, it was actually at the fourth year. When Titus and Vespasian destroyed the Jewish temple, did sacrifice and offering cease? Yes, it did. Did Titus and Vespasian enter the temple and proclaim themselves to be God and demand that the Jewish people worship them? No. That didn't happen. This means that there's an outstanding seven. There's an outstanding seven. In the book of Revelation, there are seven churches. There are seven seals. There are seven trumpets. There are seven thunders. There are seven plagues that take place over a seven. What's gonna happen? My friend Ron Rhodes in his wonderful resource, 40 Days Through Daniel, provides this exciting sneak peek into Israel's future. When I was coming to this particular point, I thought, maybe I should do one more, but I'm not going to. I'm just gonna give you the peek. Imagine you're at the movies. And I'm just giving you a sneak peek at this book that finds itself at the end of the Bible. Ron Rhodes writes, number one, 
Israel's apostasy will end at the second coming of Yeshua, Jesus, the Messiah, when she repents of her rejection of Jesus as the divine Messiah. Number two, Israel's sin will be removed, now being, having trusted Jesus as their savior. He cites Ezekiel chapter 37, verse 23, Romans chapter 11, verses 20 through 27, as it talks about and as Paul talks about that the branch has been broken off, but it's only for a season. And number three, as Israel repents of her rejection of her Messiah at the second coming, the atonement that the Messiah wrought at the cross will provide salvation for the Jews. This is the gospel. The gospel is that it's that sacrifice that's found, provided salvation for you. Number four, Christ will bring about perfect righteousness in his covenant people during this millennial kingdom. The Bible describes a time when the Messiah comes. He is the son of David. He sits on the throne that has always belonged to him. God gave a promise to David. He said, to you and to your seed, they will sit on the throne. Is it literally going to come true? I think so. Number five, all the covenant promises to Israel in the Old Testament will be sealed. What does that mean? Fully realized in the millennial kingdom. And remember in verse 24, to seal up vision and prophecy. What does that mean? It literally, I believe, means that an unsealed prophecy is an unfulfilled prophecy. So prophecy takes two forms. That which has been fulfilled and that which remains unfulfilled. And number six, the most holy place. This most holy place in the millennial kingdom will be consecrated. How do we know? That's the vision of Ezekiel. That's the unfolding vision of Ezekiel. In Ezekiel chapter 41, chapter 42, chapter 43, chapter 44, chapter 45, chapter 46. So if I had 60 seconds to teach you the entire book of Revelation and all five chapters in Ezekiel that I just outlined, I would do it. You're going to have to do it. I don't recommend reading the book of Revelation until you've read the 65 books that precede it. But I do recommend that you read the book of Revelation if you really, really, really want to know about what's going to happen in the one outstanding seven that remains. For the Christian, Jesus comes. He ends the transgression. He is the satisfying solution to the problem of sin. That's what Christians really believe. Christians believe that Yeshua, Jesus, is God's Messiah. Christians believe that this son of David is the promised Messiah who was spoken of in the book of Genesis and Deuteronomy, 
who was predicted in Micah and who was outlined in this book of Daniel, that he comes, he lives the perfect life. He dies as the satisfaction for sin. He rises from the dead to prove to all that he's God's Messiah. And according to the Bible, he rises, he goes to heaven, he's seated at the right hand of the Father, but he will come again. He will come again. Because God's dealing with the Jew remains unfinished. God has outstanding business. The Jewish people, with the Jewish city. And God has unfinished business with some of you. Some of you have been running and hiding. Some of you have been crying and wondering. Some of you have been praying and preparing. Some of you have been tasked with this sense of urgency as you wonder what it is that God wants from you. I don't know everything about everything, but I do know this. He wants each and every person to turn from their sin. He wants each and every person to receive Jesus as their Savior, to embrace him as their Messiah, to experience the washing and cleansing and reconciliation that he will one day provide for God's people in God's city. But we have to stop. Heavenly Father, I pray for these men and women. I pray that you've stirred up things inside their heart. Lord, I pray that each and every person wants to know, wait a minute, I need to read the book of Revelation. Wait a minute, I want to find out what it says in Ezekiel chapter 41 through 46. Lord, I pray that there would be a divine discontentment that would stir up in the hearts of the people as they not just want to know, but need to know how it's going to unfold, how it will end. And so, Lord, again, I pray for each and every person who's listening to my voice. If you believe that you have, you're a sinner and you want forgiveness of sin, if you believe that Jesus is God's Messiah, if you believe that he came and that he died on the cross and he rose from the dead, that he's alive and he can change your heart, that you can receive him as your Messiah, and that you can walk into the future that's been planned for you from before the beginning of time. And Heavenly Father, we pray that our curiosity wouldn't just simply be satisfied that we would want to know more and more and more about your plans and your purposes for our life. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's stand.